are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of our conversation with Professor Raymond Robertson. Raymond is a professor and holder of the Helen and Roy Rue Chair in Economics and Government within the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. He is the director of the Mosbach Institute for Trade, Economics and Public Policy, Texas A&M University. He is a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany, and a senior research fellow at the Mission Foods Texas Mexico Center. But long before all of this, he was an economics professor at McAllister College, a small liberal arts school in Minnesota. At the time, I was also an undergraduate student at McAllister and enrolled in some of his classes. So that's where we first met. In part one, we covered why working conditions in the garment industry have remained interesting to him over twenty plus years of research, and how have his research questions evolved. He shared a bit about some of his most recent research, which looks at data from the Better Factories program in Cambodia to evaluate how working conditions correspond to factory closure rates. In this episode, Raymond poses question: Are workers and factory managers aligned on their priorities? When it comes to social compliance, do they agree about what's most important? This leads the two of us to share some anecdotes about our own experiences, and to some much more fundamental questions, like what kinds of assumptions do we, as sustainability advocates, make about what workers want, and are those assumptions safe to make? Are they universally applicable? And if not, what does this mean for social compliance audits? Is data from social compliance audits a reasonable proxy for improved worker well-being? And if we agree that social audits are a necessary but not sufficient condition, what's next? Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with JZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economics, Cooperation and Development, and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Raymond was a speaker on the third edition of JZ Fabrics' online seminar series called "Getting Through the Crisis Together: Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry." If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast, or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series "Getting Through the Crisis Together: Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry," check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. This nuance in the debate that I think is missing is that there's working conditions and then there's working conditions. And we had another paper、uh, with Drusilla Brown and that team that、um, looked at whether or not、uh, you know the compliance factors that that factories would change are the same ones that workers、uh, would really care about in the sense of wanting to improve their efforts, right? And it seems like there's not always a very good match.
So the thing is, if you want to get the benefits of this improved productivity story, uh, you have to kind of change those. You have to prioritize the working conditions that workers care about the most because it's going to vary probably factory by factory, right? Some factories might really want one thing and other workers, one other group of workers want something else. But the kind of the, the theory from HR literature, from human resource literature, is that when you do kind of provide those conditions, you become compliant in those areas that workers really care about. Uh, they're less likely to leave and you don't need to spend as much on training and you don't have to uh, you know, they become more productive maybe, or there might be less, you know, kind of, um, you know, in the literature, it's called shirking. I'm not saying people are shirking, but that's kind of the word they use in the literature. So I'd be curious to see if if that resonates with you at all, right? I mean, I know you're, you've said several times, Kim, <laughs> that it's not, the issue was not worker productivity. That was my problem, right? The problem was the erratic uh, orders. But, you know, does that story resonate with you at all as a as a manager? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I'll give you an answer, but it will probably sound like frustratingly vague and imprecise. So something that Jesse and I have actually talked about quite a bit on this show. So I had, I had actually in the second factory that I managed, I had at times quite a contentious relationship with my staff. And that was complicated for me because on a personal level, because I came into the job thinking like, well, with a lot of stereotypes and assumptions about the role of a factory manager and the factory manager as like the bad guy in the sustainability story. And I came in with the assumption, like, I can do it better. And if I do it better, I will earn the trust of my workforce and we will have a positive working relationship. And, you know, we can, we'll have like, you know, that it was possible. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was really like, it was really difficult for me to sort of come to the realization or to come to accept that, like, maybe it wasn't possible. And I sort of started to question actually, like, um, I mean, I, I had an illegal strike on my first day on the job. I had, uh, like I had, a manager who, you know, like refused to leave the building after after some disciplinary action. And I, I share the anecdote in detail in episode 24 when we talk to Matthew Rendell, who is an expert in Cambodian labor law, and we talk about how local legal context affects relationships between management and workers. But I also talked about it in the two of the episodes we did together with GIZ Fabric when we talked to... Dr. Mark Enner and Klang Atet, a Cambodian labor union leader. And that was in episode 39 and episode 40. If you're interested in this topic of worker management relations, highly recommend you go back and check those out. But I'll just share a, an abridged version here for the purposes of our conversation right now. And basically, the manager in question threatened me and said, you know, if you continue with like, you know, this disciplinary action that you want to take against me, um, my people will not work for you anymore. And um, he's, you know, threatened his contacts at the Ministry of Labor. And, 
it was, I mean, sure enough, his team refused to work. And I kind of like, it took me a few years to sort of start to make sense of the situation. And I, I think I'm starting to make sense of it now. But like, in hindsight, I couldn't understand why his team would have so, sort of, in my view, like so blindly followed him. And um, because like, in my view, like his behavior was clearly egregious misconduct. There was no way that this was going to end other than him being terminated. And, and I just thought like, you know, I thought that they would see that also, and that therefore they would sort of understand that it was short-sighted to sort of, to, to support him. And, um, in hindsight, I kind of look at the situation. I'm like, well, I was a young white female foreigner manager with no obvious ties to Cambodian government. He claimed to have ties to the Ministry of Labor. There had also been a series of foreign factory managers that had rotated in and out. So I was probably perceived as being unlikely to stick around for very long. And and so, like, in the end, I kind of looked at this and I was like, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe, like, their behavior wasn't quite so irrational. And in the end, the way that I had to like close the incident, because this particular manager hung around the parking lot for several days after the incident, trying to sort of drum up support for his cause. And so I decided I was going to leverage some loose personal connections. And I invited senior people from government to come and tour the factory. They arrived with their government license plates and their bodyguards, and they toured the factory, and they made it very clear that I was, you know, um, connected to them. And that was the end of the episode. You, You know, he never came back again after that, and I never had any more problems of that nature on the production floor again after that. Now, like, the McAllister student in me was mortified because effectively I had intimidated my workers. But at the same time, I was nervous for my own safety. I was also nervous for some of the safety of the other staff involved. And, you know, when push came to shove, like that was my priority. And, um, but that was really hard to explain to people. I had a very hard time explaining it to people who were kind of outside the context and outside the setting and what it also, you know, to go back to your question about like what my experience was, like it made me also question whether actually what my colleagues wanted, what my staff wanted above all was in fact a job. Cause if I go back to what I was saying earlier, which is that I sort of assumed that, you know, the workers on the production floor that once they saw that, you know, their, that their manager's behavior is sort of unequivocally destined him for termination, that they would see that it was short-sighted of them to support him. The assumption underpinning that was that ultimately what they were after was a job and that, you know, they would pursue the course of action that protected that job. But equally, that it would be obvious to them that I, as factory manager, was the surest bet in terms of securing protection for that job and whether they like yes a job and a paycheck was nice and was good but ultimately in a context like Cambodia which is pretty corrupt like kind of connections to political power is like really the best 
<laughs> insurance for a rainy day, even more than a steady job. And I sort of started to wonder, do my colleagues, do my work, do my, does my staff actually even value? Like, yes, they want a job. I don't want to diminish that. But is that really when push comes to, to shove, the thing that they want the most? And is that really, do they, like, I think in the West and the way that I was raised, like a job is sort of the, the surest bet against a fundamentally precarious human existence. You know, like a job and security were synonymous. I never really like question that they might not be. When in fact, when I was in Cambodia, I sort of started to, to question whether those two things actually were synonymous and whether like my colleagues really perceived the job, a job and the role of a job in sort of human security <laughs> the way that I did. And so again, to go back to your question, which I think was really about, you know, are factory managers actually changing the things that workers care about? I think that sort of presupposes or implicit within that question is the assumption that workers actually do value a job and do see that as the sort of surest way to protect against a fundamentally vulnerable and precarious human existence. And um, and I'm not sure, I guess what I, what I would say to your question is I'm not sure that that's safe to assume. And as a manager, that that sort of like meant like what, what was my power? If I wasn't offering the thing that people ultimately wanted, then kind of like that really changes the way that you are able to interact. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible story. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That is an incredible story. And I'm so glad I mean, I had the chance to you know, share that and, and hear that from you again. Um, that's awesome. Um, horrible. But you know what I mean? Very <laughs> difficult. But yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I had the first time I left the United States, right? Is that different countries do things very differently. <laughs> Culture is not the same mm -hmm. everywhere you go. And I've been many places, you know, in the in the in the world where you're like, wow, this is very different institutionally, and I'm not quite sure I know how the system is working here. Um, yeah, yeah. So and and Kim, what you said and driven your question make me uh, resonate to some of my experiences. Like Kim, you ask the question, uh, what do workers want? Is that job is really the thing they want? And mm -hmm. and Raymond, your question is about the. Uh, the relationship, the compliance, and the relationship between management and workers. So uh, when I was in China, um, I often read such news and also heard from my former work experiences that sometimes workers, when they select uh, factories, when they decide which factories to join, especially in the high season, they have bigger choices. Uh, they, what workers care sometimes would surprise people uh, out of the context. For instance, what they care most is uh, where that factory provides dormitories and food and the quality of the food. And also, very interesting, where that factory has uh, overtime work. So, you know, in China, of course, we have the minimum wage wages and also we have quite strict regulations about the social tax and social benefits and so on. So you can see uh Quite a lot of factories will, will meet the minimum wages, but then, and also all the other social tax and social benefits. But then, above that, workers also care a lot if the factories will have overtime work or not. They want to go to factories who provide overtime work. They don't want to go to a factory who strictly obeyed law, let's say, maximum 
I don't know, 45 hours a week or maximum this much hours a month. They don't want that. They want to go to a factory, have lots of business, and maybe, maybe one day per month have a rest because their goal is quickly get enough amount of money so they can go back to their hometown. I don't know, build a house or, or they can have a startup capital to open a small shop or have a small business and so on. So they have their own agenda. So that's why if a factory said, Oh, we, we are very, uh, social compliant. We will only make your work maximum 45 hours a week. I'm not sure <laughs> they can have enough skilled workers. Yeah. And, and of course, this will vary from context to context. Like these are the anecdotes, Jesse, that you heard, like through your networks. Um, but like I, it raises an interesting question, too, is like what happens when the thing that workers want or, you know, actually maybe contradicts uh, or goes against sort of social compliance requirements? Yeah, no, I, I, I've heard that story a lot. I completely agree with you. And I, I've also seen research coming out of Bangladesh that did surveys that uh, asked workers about how they felt about overtime. And there's so it really does create this weird incentive. And I think factories know that. Yeah. Because right? at the one hand, they have to tell the buyers, they have to tell the brands that, no, we're compliant. But on the other hand, they have to tell the workers we're not going to be compliant on overtime. But the interesting thing yeah. is that all these all these described scenarios lead to a, an, another question, which is a social audit. What kind of conditions? I mean, or maybe I should say, is there a universal? Is that is that is that proper? We have a universal standard for all the factories, no matter what size they are, what kind of products they produce, and where they are. Then we kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like, I think one of the things that I think there's two things that are sort of like underpinning what we're talking about. On the one hand, we are, I think, putting into like, I think there are sometimes assumptions that are made about like, the relationship between factory manager and factory workers, and what kind of leverage a factory manager has over its workers and what those workers want which maybe is not so universal as maybe we sometimes like to say or or think that it is. On the other hand, then Jesse, there's this question that I think you're getting at, which is like social compliance, like the other assumption that I think underpins a lot of our discussion so far is the idea that social compliance and better conditions for workers are synonymous. And I think that like, you know, we talked about this last time we we talked, there's increasing, our, you know, alignment and research around the idea that actually social compliance hasn't delivered for workers. And that sort of, and there's different theories as to why that might be. But I would be curious, Raymond, your take on that, you know, have social compliance audits delivered for workers does that require assuming that all workers want the same thing you know and and like how do we sort of juggle this sort of the particular and the universal yeah so that that's another that's kind of the heart of the question right and i think that there's a growing consensus that audits are not sufficient for improving working conditions in factories 
is. I think everyone can agree on that. And we'll put some links in the show notes to some of the work that's come out by the New Conversations Project, which is housed in the Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And Raymond is a, is part of the extended research network for that project. And a lot of times, there, you could even make the argument, I mean, some people would make this argument, I haven't written this out yet, and I'm not sure I'd advocate it, but you know, the thing that you were saying earlier, Kim, was that audits can actually make conditions worse, right? Because, I mean, you're spending all this time kind of spending and money mm. trying to do the data work and trying to comply with everything, and you're not doing the things that the factory is supposed to be doing. So you can actually make uh, it, it more difficult to actually function. And I think that that is a point that's underappreciated. Uh, I think one of the things that we have learned from the literature, from all the studies that I've read anyway, is that there has to be some other, you can't just have audits, right? And, and audits, and I understand the kind of the New Conversations Project, and I just got Sarosha's new book, mm. you know, the private regular, I can plug this for him, you know, the private, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen this as I have well. seen it, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just, I just got it uh, just on Friday in the mail. So, um, but, uh, you know, the, the argument there is that audits are probably insufficient, right? That you can't just, just collecting audits isn't, doesn't do anything for workers. And I think that's very clear. I think what's important is what do you do with that information? And what kind of support do you give factories to improve the things uh, that might need improving? But also, you know, how can you, and this is not part of that debate, that I've seen, right, that that's really missing is that there's, again, working conditions and then there's working conditions, right? If you if you could say, okay, look, there's 243 things that are on this social compliance list, on this audit list, and, and you're not going to be compliant with everything. Given the fact that you're not compliant with everything, how do we prioritize kind of what's most important? And, you know, the brands generally, and I think I can say this without revealing any you know, confidential data, but the brands basically don't want forced labor and they don't want child labor. And that is like an absolute red flag and, you know, like a stop dealing with them. But okay, so the compliance data that I've seen on forced labor and child, and child labor is extremely, um, compliance data is very high, right? The non-compliance is extremely low on those areas for that reason. But then there's a whole bunch of other things that might actually really matter. And how do we think about targeting those and separating those and prioritizing those uh, in a way that's going to be, you know, consistent with compliance in, in kind of a social compliance kind of way and a way that helps workers and a way that helps factories. And the only way you're going to do that is to have this conversation like you're fostering, Kim, between the managers and the broader stakeholder community. I mean, Right, we have to come to some kind of agreement on what the priorities are, and and have uh, a cooperative approach, uh, because the you know this kind of top down doesn't really work, and the bottom up doesn't necessarily work either. And you know, whenever you talk about I, I, this space, is really interesting to me, and I'm really glad I really like your podcast, right? Because the top down approach is one approach, and the bottom up approach is another approach, and the the managers of the factories are caught in the middle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're stuck between the top down and the bottom up. And so how do we sort of really kind of emphasize kind of the their struggles, right? And, and, and that's why I think what you're doing is so important. Um, well, thank you. Um, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I, I don't have an answer either. I mean, social compliance data like, I don't, I also wouldn't advocate, you know, you said there's sort of like, 
you could have, you could even argue that factories like, you know, we should throw the compliance checklist out the window and because they're actually using up resources that could be going towards things that are actually benefiting workers. Like I wouldn't advocate for that either, but I don't know. I guess for me, my, my, um, over the last year, as I've talked to more and more people, my sort of thought is, you know, I, I wish that when we were talking about compliance, that it was more about like holding up a mirror and sort of, you know, like the litmus test that I held myself to when I was a factory manager was like, okay, I can't, I can't control. There's a lot I can't control. And uh, so like, for me, like if I'm going to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day, like the question I'm going to ask myself is like, did anything that I did in any way sort of like motivate or create an incentive for somebody else to do something bad, right? And they may do something bad anyway, even if Mm -hmm. I haven't created the incentive. But like, at least like, that's all I can do is make sure that my own behavior isn't implicated in that decision. And I wish as we were thinking about social compliance, that we were thinking about like, how can we hold that mirror? And because I think as a factory manager, if I had someone sort of on me, asking me that, asking me to, you know, and I wrote about this in in one of my articles, but like asking me, have I paid my suppliers on time? You know, have I, have I, you know, have I given them a forecast? Am I paying them deposits? What do I do when my forecasts change? What's my communication like with them? I definitely could have done better. But nobody, no auditor was ever asking me that, you know, and and I wish kind of that that was that that that's where the the focus was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I definitely I hear you, and I think that that is something that a lot of the CSR people that I've talked to, especially kind of throughout my career, the last over the last decade or fifteen years in the space, at least, um, they've said that you know one of the struggles that we have is getting purchasing to kind of buy into the story that we're trying to tell. You know what Mm. I'm saying? And so there are some brands I know that managed to build the bridge between purchasing and the CSR people. Um, Because the CSR people are oftentimes the ones responsible for the audits, right? And they have the data and they kind of know what the problems are. And I think a lot of the, I'm a, you know, a lot of the the CSR people that I work with are really very smart and they're very aware. They know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's a matter of how much, you know, credibility and um, power in a way can you give the CSR people uh, at the same time, obviously balancing the concerns mm-hmm. that you have about profits at the at the firm level. And it seems like just having more information sharing is a great first step. And there isn't enough of that going on, I think, uh, widely. And I think some some brands are doing that, but but it, doing more of that would be great. I'm, yeah, I'm curious because like I have sort of two questions. And my first is, you know, um, it sort of makes what you're like, my personal experience was that I, you know, I also dealt with CSR people on the brand side who understood this very well. But like something that I was told repeatedly was, we understand, but our procedure dictates that, you know, and that procedure, like you, and you sort of zoom out and you look at that procedure, like a lot of that ultimately was being driven by 
I, I think anyway, like a very narrow understanding of shareholder obligations and this need to make a short-term profit at any and all costs. And I, I don't know, I, I'm curious, like, what what are your thoughts on that? Because, like, is it just about alignment between the CSR department and the purchasing department? Or is there also sort of like a bigger question at stake here about which is, you know, how do we how do we define our obligations to shareholders? Yeah, I think that one of the exciting things about 2021 that I've seen is this shift, and I do feel it's a it's a wider spread shift from the focus on shareholders to stakeholders. And I think we've seen that mentioned over and over in the United States. And I think that in the United States, corporations are at least uh, paying lip service to that idea that we need to be more concerned about our stakeholders more broadly. And I think the COVID crisis in the United States has made a lot of companies say, wait a minute, you know, there's there's racial inequities, there's uh, economic inequities that we might be playing a, a role in. And, uh, you know, I can give you two examples of that shift, you know, in when Georgia passed this mm-hmm. uh, kind of restrictive voting rights laws, you know, Coca-Cola kind of, you know, stood up and Delta stood up and they're like, we're not going to support this type of legislation that disenfranchises the disenfranchised, the people who've been disenfranchised. You know, we're not we're not going to put up with that. And I, so I do feel like there is kind of a shift more broadly. But I, I hear what you're saying is that it would be great if this caught on worldwide, right? And I think the COVID crisis did open up a lot of eyes. So I mean, I'm kind of an optimistic and I don't want to be polyamorous <laughs> about it, but you know what I'm saying? I, I am optimistic. Well, and that brings me to the second part of my question, which is like, really has to do with you know, is social compliance data that we're collecting through factory audits a reasonable proxy for evaluating whether working conditions are improving? Because the reason, like, let me just connect those two thoughts more overtly. But like, you know, a few months ago, I saw Nike and I think maybe Chipotle and a couple of companies were tying their executive pay to various things that were beyond making a short-term profit and that they sort of made a public commitment that they were going to evaluate their executives based on these things. And when you look, for example, and so at first I was like, oh, well, this is great. Then when I went and looked into the details and looked at like what exactly Nike was going to be when it came to supply chain relations. So there were a whole bunch of things, inclusion, diversity, you know, what, you know, all kinds of normative goals. But one of them had to do with sustainability. And when you looked at sustainability and you looked specifically at like how they were going to evaluate executives against like their sustainability performance, it was all tied to their performance on their supply chains performance on these social audits. And, um, and so that's like sort of where I'm like, for me, why those two things are connected. And I'm curious, like if there's sort of increasing alignment around the idea that social compliance audits maybe haven't delivered, then like what are, and yet at the same time, we're having these sort of broader conversations around, you know, shareholders versus stakeholders and how we're going to, I guess, ultimately define success. Like, (laughs) where does that leave us, you know? Yeah, so this goes back to the issue about 
uh, my career uh, uh, about, you know, why did I do the things that I did? My, and I said, the data are really important, right? So not having social audits are kind of a necessary but not sufficient condition, in my opinion, that we have to have some kind of data. And if you're like, well, the social audits we have now need to be fixed, okay, but you need to have some sort of measurement at some point, right? And whether the current social audits are a good idea or not, like having the firms, having the factories pay for the social audits seems a little bit incongruous with the whole plan. I mean, if your CEO <laughs> is giving an incentive to performance on the social audits and you're making the factories pay for them right away, that, that should be the first thing you fix, right? Let's fix that first. And then secondly, right, how do we sort of shape those audits into things that matter, right? So we have the ILO, International mm -hmm. Labor Standards, which, but that comes down to, you know, forced labor, child labor at the top, right, of the list. And then you have freedom of association, collective bargaining, um, also right up near the top um, in terms of their priorities. And then you have domestic labor laws, which are the other things. But, you know, what are the other things that might really matter to workers? And how can we sort of shape these audits in a way that's going to generate, and this is the key point, this is the key point, that generates the information that we then use <laughs> in our programs that help the factories improve their performance, you know, or compliance. You can't just have audits. And even just, just having the audits doesn't do anything. You need to have some kind of incentive structure. You need to have some support. You need to have order stability, right? You need to address the things that factories need. You need to listen to the managers and address those things that they're struggling with in order to create the incentives to improve compliance if that's what you want. You know, just telling factories to become more compliant and then paying your CEO more when they do, some, what's wrong with that statement? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like something's really wrong with that statement. But like, okay, maybe this is provocative or not quite the right thing to say, but like the skeptic in me is like, okay, but the data we need to really look at that, if we go back to like, I mean, my thing is, like what I was saying earlier, is holding up the mirror. You know, what am I doing that creates the incentive for other people to behave or not behave a certain way? And like the brands of the world, they have that data. They know whether they're paying their suppliers on time. They know whether they're paying deposits. They know whether they're like giving reasonable lead times, you know, um, but no, but nobody like they don't want to they don't want to talk about that. Well, right. And that's that's going to be the issue. Right. And that's why it's important to do academic research and these types of discussions. <laughs> and that they do, you know, I, the brands I've talked to, especially I, I hang out more with the CSR people. Right. than the CFOs are mm. a lot of times. But, you know, the CSR people, I think, are very, very sensitive to public opinion and public sentiment. And they really respond to a lot of um, the work that, you know, like ACT or some of the other, you know, mm. these different groups are doing. And so, you know, I think those groups are highlighting those points. And I think we're also moving to a broader understanding of the necessity of creating the incentives at the buyer level that are necessary for improving compliance. I mean, I, I do. Th I mean, I'm optimistic about that. And the CSR people, I think, that I've talked to are very much aware of that. So, I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's going to change necessarily immediately or whatever, but the first step is being more aware. And the second step is kind of knowing what to do next. And I think they're, they're moving in that direction, but maybe not there yet. 
Is there anything that you would really like to say that you don't feel you've had a chance to say or that you'd like to discuss? Pursuing more academic resources in this area and having these partnerships, I think where academia is moving is towards more of these public-private partnerships with um, you know, the public sector, the governments, and the private sector with the brands and the factories and academia. And the more we can kind of build those relationships, uh, I think the better it's going to be for everybody, right? Because you can apply sort of the latest knowledge and the latest techniques that benefits uh, factories because, you know, have an independent person that's not charging you <laughs> anything to kind of help you work through these issues, like the laboratory you mentioned in India. Um, and it obviously helps the brands, right? Because the brands want to be efficient. The brands want to <laughs> be the as efficient as possible and improve uh, their metrics in the lowest cost way. And academia can help you do that. Um, so that's the only thing. That's a that's a very selfish plug. What do you think is the barrier <laughs> to having to see more of that? You know, I just think that uh, there has a, it's inertia. There hasn't been enough of that. People don't really know about that, and it's hard for like, especially like you know, as factories. When you're a factory manager in Cambodia, aren't you up to here with work? Yeah. I mean, how are you going to make connections to some academic in Texas? You know what I'm saying? Like that's really difficult to do. So you know, helping kind of build those bridges. Uh, would be great. And, and, you know, brands can help do that as well. But um, academics are very excited about working. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do. So please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.